0: You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers.
1: Margaret Wise. Sherry Brooks. Tina Kamal. Matthew Quick. JT Ellison.
2: Walt D. Williams. Brad Ford. Corey. Dr. O. Robin Hong. Ernest Klein. Jim Butcher. Sherlene
0: Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for
2: archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Waiting for my recorder to start.
0: Okay, here we go. In the three, two, one. Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Kirsty Manning back on the show with me. She was on the show a couple of years ago when we talked about her book, The Song of the Jade Lily, and it was one of my absolute favorite books of the year. And uh, this year she's back with a new book called The French Gift, a novel of World War II Paris. And this is such a phenomenal read. Um, If you love historical fiction like I do, and you love mysteries uh, like I do, this is a perfect amalgam of of different genres that just really make it something special. I know you're going to love it. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Kirstie.
3: Thank you. It's lovely to be here.
0: It's so lovely to have you. Um, you know, since we since we chatted last time, uh, you know, a, a little thing has happened that's kind of affected the whole rest of the world. Um, you know, COVID nineteen. We are, you know, closing in on two years of this, and uh, you know, I I I like to ask people, how has this affected you and your creative process, and w- what has this last couple of years been like for you?
3: Well, thank you, Hank, for asking. Um, I live in Victoria, so I'm in Melbourne, and I don't know whether Americans are aware, but um, we were quite fortunate in Australia in that the pandemic didn't hit us as well, but what they did was they locked down our state. (laughs) So we were um, locked down for something like I think it's 270 days. We were
0: oh my goodness.
3: locked in houses with curfews and allowed out once or twice a day. And I have three teenagers. Um, we also, um, my husband and I, have wine um, shops and also a restaurant. So, obviously, our business was closed, um, the restaurant was closed, um, and we were all working at home. And we um, You know, it presented certainly challenges, like having three teenagers and two adults in clothes (laughs) confined. Um, At that time, um, we were in the process of moving. So uh, we were in kind of a rental house while we were waiting to move into our new house. So um, I didn't have a designated office. So I wrote the french gift literally at the dining table in our rental with my husband working at the other end and my three teenagers kind of wandering past asking me you know what's to eat can we have some more food it's <laughs> like <laughs> 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 it out for one supermarket shop a day or something like that so um became my highlight so i didn't like to keep too much fridge in the food in the food in the fridge so i had an excuse to leave oh yeah. Uh, You know, and so it really kind of changed the way I wrote in some ways because while I did write at the table, you know, it's quite a luxury I've realised as a writer to write um, with quiet time. Yeah. Yeah. and, and that was very much snatch time during the pandemic for me. And um, so when I really needed to get into the deep parts of the book, I'd often get up really early in the morning before everyone else was up. Um, and also just because my mind was whirring and I was, like, really deep into the book, so I'd do it then.
0: Well, one thing that's been really interesting, uh, Kirsty, is y- – You know, um, writing is a very solitary pursuit for for the majority of the time that you're working on the book. It's just you and your computer or you and your notebook or, you know, whatever your process is. But it's just you and the story. Um, And and, you know, most writers kind of work from home or, you know, uh, some office space that they have just alone for a lot of the a lot of the process is just done solitarily. Um, But there there's and, and and you know we and we gladly do that, but it's a it's another thing altogether when you know that everyone else is working from home as well, and uh, and and everyone is locked down. Even though that may not directly affect you, um, there's there's a a mental thing that goes on with knowing that the whole rest of the world is you know doing uh, things the way you do, and then to add the stress of having the rest of your family you know, kind of piled on top of you as as it were, that that adds a whole other element to it. That's what what an what a crazy time that we've been living
3: in. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because I feel like um probably like many writers that I can socially isolate like a boss. Sure. <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> that would be my um normal existence, living like yeah. a hermit. Um, you know, my long everyone became huge walkers in Uh, melbourne victoria because you're allowed out within five kilometers of your house to go for a walk for one hour a day and they extended it generously to two hours oh how Uh, nice that one how lovely and so (laughs) that really became um walking has always been my way like my kids will often say that um well actually i'll tell you a funny story my husband rose i think you call it crew over there in america yeah yeah um so i often walk beside the river and my husband rose with his crew and and um, and he said he was laughing because he was walking along. He was rowing past me and I was walking the dog and he said the dog was going nuts because he'd called out and recognised his voice. He said, but I didn't realise at all that um, he was there and paid no heed to him and he said, you were just walking along <laughs> making hand gestures, talking like crazy to yourself oblivious to the fact the dog knew I was there but you didn't know I was there I was rowing past right beside you and you paid no heed to me and I do when I'm on these walks I'm kind of practicing dialogue I'm mashing out a scene it's amazing because sometimes you really um get into your characters and I'm not I'm not so mad that I believe that my characters are actually exist or they take on their own personalities but I do kind of test a lot of dialogue out loud or run a conversation through my head or out loud as it turns out <laughs> I've realised um to see how it lands and see what it sounds like and I find that ritual of um being in motion I swim a lot too in the ocean I do ocean swimming and um it's really where I get a lot of my big thoughts out I I do a lot of my writing not at the keyboard. I seem to kind of get it out in my head and then it all just kind of runs out on the page. finally, when I get to the page.
0: I love that. Um, you know there there's, um, when when someone invariably asks, uh, you know, what what tools do you need to be a great writer? A lot of the times the answer that that a new writer will get is, well, you need to read a lot and you need to write a lot. And, you know, just the, the mechanics of, one, seeing how other people do it and then practice practicing it yourself, you know, it, that – that's how you build those skills. And I like to add a third uh, thing to that. And the third thing is um, to, to talk to people and to listen to people and, and listen to not just the words that people are saying, although that is, that's very important to actually hear what people are saying, um, but to, to hear how they say it and the, the yeah. cadences of, of dialogue and and how we communicate back and forth. Those things are very important and uh, practicing your dialogue out loud um I think is a fantastic um, way to to make sure that when someone is reading your story it feels like it's real people.
3: it does and um and I find when you read things out loud, if you're really stuck on a section of the page um, or a section of your book to read it out loud, you can really, um, feel at once whether the sentences are clanging and the cadence of the sentences, as you say, the tone, whether it's right. You can feel it out loud. I said, my son was writing an essay the other day, a piece, and I said, read it out loud, read it out loud, and see if it makes sense, because that's when you'll know whether that paragraph is is working. So, um, I mean, you can't read a whole novel out loud. I know some people do, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know the tricksy bits or sentences that are really important read it out loud and you'll see you'll soon see if it's too much like if you're embarrassed reading it out loud and if you are an author who tours trust me you will be (laughs) asked to um to read out you know some quite powerful scenes of your book um at times and they'll put you on the spot so you want to make sure that it I often find myself wishing I'd read more of it out loud because then I want to change it on the fly when I'm doing my readings.
0: <laughs> well, and if, and if you're embarrassed to read it out loud, it's going to show on the
3: page. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I try I mm-hmm. out that as much as possible.
0: So Kirsty, when we talked last uh, your book, the, the song of the Jade Lily uh, was out and what an amazing book that was. Um, and then uh, last year you published the lost jewels, didn't you?
3: Yes, I did. That and um,
0: and, and that yeah. was kind of when when all of this uh, COVID stuff was cranking up, and um, you know we we didn't get to chat last year when when that book came out. Um, but you know, one launching a book during a pandemic that has to be hectic, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, my um, I just remember feeling quite nauseous when. Um, Because my book came out in Australia just when the first lockdown happened, so all the bookshops closed. Mm. And then it came out in America when everything closed. But I mean, I think the silver lining was that people were reading, they took to reading again very early. Um, In those early stages of lockdown, they were very um, keen to, um, I guess, uh, hold stories in their hearts for a little while. And this was the story of a piece of jewellery. And funnily enough, it, um, I'm no soothsayer, but it did cover the plague in England that era. It's about a war and, um, not a war, but, uh, you know, crossing of continents. And it's the story sure. of a very precious piece of jewellery based on a true exhibition in the Museum of London, the Cheapside Hoard, um, which were buried actually in uh, in the ground, sometime in the 1600s, and dug up mysteriously um, in 19 in the 1900s, and um, and then they were hidden and stolen again, and then gradually they were bought back from various sources, um, and most of them are in the Museum of London. And I thought that story, the lost jewels, was right for fictionalising because just when I read the review of the exhibition I just thought who would bury 500 pieces of very precious jewellery in the 1600s and never return like who would do that (laughs) I thought and then nobody knows who buried them and nobody knows who dug them up they were dug up on a work site by some um what they called navvies then like um you know very uh poor laborers so it um, really left the doorway open. I, I imagine the story of a young woman on the on the building site whose brother was part of that, who, who discovered the jewellery and how um, it's a story of how a piece of jewellery passes from, I guess, from its origin in the ground and the hands and the craftsmanship that goes over it when they, from the mining of it, the cutting of the jewel to... Um, the gift of giving a piece of jewellery and then um, the love associated with receiving a piece of jewellery and I guess all the hands and all the stories that pass over it. So um, so it was a joy to write and, you know, it was I'll lovely bet. feedback. And then, and then when I was, that was coming out and I was writing The French Gift, which, and it really did, getting to your question, I guess the pandemic really informed the writing of the French gift because all of a sudden I was plunged into our home and not able to leave at all. And travel was off the table for Australians. I mean we couldn't we were banned from leaving our country and everyone was banned from coming into Australia. I mean, you can do that I guess with uh, an island. <laughs> but I don't I don't think any other country banned. Um, banned people like we did, and so it just became apparent to me that I needed to write pockets of joy and really give a moment in this book. So it opens on the Riviera in the current day uh well, it opens with a historical scene that I'll get to in a moment, but um I wanted to uh imagine a family villa on the Riviera and give people that feeling of, you know, the salty breeze and the warm sun against um, the pink hue of the stone of the buildings and the warm salty breads and the sweet pastries and the rosé, the wine, the beautiful wine that they have and that kind of last sigh of um, summer in Provence and along the Riviera. I wanted to give people some of the, the magic of that joy, and I, um, and the book actually opens with um, a grand party in the Riviera at at one of the top villas, and um, there had been a murder party planned, <laughs> and this is actually true. I read I read a reference book. I read a, I read a lot of memoirs, and um, in this particular memoir, I read a story of. Um, a very wealthy aristocratic family um, that uh, threw a party and arranged for one of the guests to pretend she'd been murdered. It, um, and, and then she'd arranged for the local constabulary to arrive and interview all the dinner party guests. And can you imagine? They must have been absolutely terrified. So we've got... Right. You know, a swimming pool filled with Krug champagne outside. There's waiters everywhere. You know, everyone's in tuxedos and shimmery. It's in the late 1930s. They're in these spectacular, you know, dresses dripping with diamonds and jewellery and um, silk and satin that kind of hug the body a bit and um, very strappy dresses, very elegant. And um, and to imagine a murder... Um, so I just thought that was a beautiful way to begin a book. I thought, I'll take that and I'll use that in a novel and imagine <laughs> if that goes wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't want to give away anything, but, um, you know, it, it's it's the fun in the planning. But I wanted to give someone that decadent kind of over-the-top party scene yeah, and give open the book with a kind of Agatha Christie-esque vibe, you know, a decadent yes. A country house, lockdown guests, a kind of whodunit feel. But of course, that's not um, the bulk of the story. It is, so there is Margot, one of my characters, who's a maid at this party, and she is a witness to um, the events that unfolded. And of course, then there is um, the story of Josephine, who was a resistance fighter in Paris. And and that is actually based on a true story of Agnès Humbert, who was um, actually, I mean, the the French resistance was a very informal organisation in its early stages. It was more um, groups of uh, very clever and very brave people working under clandestine um, circumstances and they printed a lot of uh, propaganda, I guess, and information and they smuggled their men out of Paris. They did all sorts of things and they um, got maps of uh, where munitions were stored, German munitions were stored. And Agnes ran these clandestine programs in um, Paris and she was quite sassy and funny and very brave but she was arrested by the Gestapo and she was actually sent to a work camp under the German program Night and Nable, which is um, under the cover of darkness. They were shipped to Germany um, and put in the Free Rayon Factory. And I had never heard. I've studied um, a lot of World War Two history, and I'd never heard of um, of all the women who were sent to work in the rayon factories. And actually when the French Department of Defence, in my source materials, um, uh, did an investigation of all the concentration camps across Germany, they declared the free rayon factory as the most murderous. And that was quite shocking to me because I had heard of other camps, obviously, and had visited them in um, years ago as a university student, but I'd never heard of the women who worked in these um, rayon factory conditions and, um, you know, there were huge sheds set up with very little air circulation filled with acid and, of course, rayon was crucial to the German supply line because it meant that they could still manufacture fake cloth when all their other supply lines were um were i guess blockaded and um stopped and and you know having fabric meant that soldiers could stay warm civilians could stay warm it was it sure. was real crucial to their um i guess keeping their their soldiers and their population healthy and warm during those long dark winters and um and the women were so maimed who worked there and there was very little I won't go into it you you'll have to sure. read the book yeah Continue a, a lot of I I have a lot of resources at the back for any readers that are interested, but um you know the friendships that formed between these women who kept themselves going were were remarkable, and so I wanted to show um, the friendship that unfolds between Margot, this French maid, and Josephine, this um uh, a resistance worker who became very close friends and of course while they are in the free round factory at night while they're while they're lying there discussing it they try and um unpick i guess the um story of margot back in the riviera and try and try and work out what really happened that night so so the agatha christie thread is kind of (laughs) weaving through it
2: Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy to use, cloud based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit dabblewriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with story origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place, from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com I love it. I love it. And that's one of my favorite things of the
0: book is that it is this, uh, this mystery that, that, uh, that you tease out all through the book. I, I love that. That really elevates the story to, uh, to another level. Um, and you touched on this, uh, a little bit earlier, Kirsty, about the, uh, the origins of this story. And, uh, I, I want to ask you when you're first Working on a book when when the when the birth, when the when the book first is birthed, when it first comes alive, what is the first thing that you're usually looking at? Is it a character? And then you're kind of putting that character in situations to see how she might behave. Uh, Is it, uh, you know, since you write historical fiction, are you looking at historical events and then trying to figure out. Um, kind of what characters might do around this event or is it like you sort of alluded to earlier that you especially in this book began with with more of a of a feeling of a um, uh, of a an Agatha Christie type setting and, and more of a mood that you wanted to get across and then the story kind of comes alive out of that mood what what is that the the birth process of the book like for you?
3: Oh, that's a that's a very good question. So for the French gift, it was very much mar- marrying these two, uh, I guess, source materials that I had um, extensively researched. So it was the the story of the extravagant parties in the Riviera just before the Second World War, and I enjoyed having a bit of a play because, of course, you know the guests, the British. Um, guests uh, I had Churchill there as a guest Winston Churchill um, of course who was saying you know we need to watch the Boches as they called them the Germans Um, they're gathering force and Chamberlain the British Prime Minister of course was batting them away saying it's not an issue that it's not going to be another war because of course they'd had the great war the first world war sure and um and nobody was thinking that you would possibly go into that horror again so um so and in france they had a uh, particularly the wealthy had really escaped that recession that had hit other parts of the world i mean germany was on its knees Australia was certainly deep in recession, um, and America, but um, but but you know France was carrying on very nicely. <laughs> they were they were having big champagne parties, and I just thought, um, so I thought, let's capture that moment, that that blissful, decadent ignorance, and ramp it up and try and do Agatha Christie. And then I'd read the Free Round Factory and I thought, I really want to tell the story of a journalist and the resistance thread through Paris and the story of the Free Round Factory. And I remember when I pitched the French gift to my agent, she was like, whoa, this is a lot. (laughs) <laughs> this is a lot of eras. And then, of course, there's the contemporary story of Eve who has lost her husband and has come back to the um, French Riviera to kind of s- compile the materials for Josephine, her husband's great aunt, um, because they're going to do a retrospective of her um, book, of her. She, Josephine actually, um, I should say, uh, survived obviously the um, free rail factory and she went on and became like a very famous writer <laughs> and she became a very famous mystery writer so you know it's stories within a story so you know there's snippets of her interviews talking about crime writing and so you know I'm kind of twisting that Agatha Christie thing the oh, whole yeah. way through yeah. and she's a you know she's a international bestseller I was probably projecting there (laughs) um, with mysteries and you know it was just those little bits were fun to write and um and then of course it's the story of Evie coming back and kind of reconciling the loss of her husband and looking back on Josephine's um story I guess throughout um from the time she was incarcerated to how she became a global bestseller, in the process of um, shepherding her son, Hugo, into adulthood. So he um, is in his final year of exams and coping with the loss of his father and um, and it's about that uh, sense of, um, you know, sometimes I think I don't put a lot of myself in these books but I think it's no coincidence that I was writing this book at home with my teenagers and my eldest son is actually in that process of leaving home. And so I guess it's that I was writing this kind of book, this ode to myself. It's it's also, it's a book about female friendship. It's a book about strength and resilience and being um, capable of far more than you thought you were. And it's a book about second chances and fresh starts but it's also a book about motherhood and mothers and sons and you know that that kind of raw feeling of intense grief but also pride as your son kind of tears away from you and goes into the world as they yeah. should absolutely <laughs> He was like, "Oh, you're not putting me in the book, are you?" I said, "No, no, it's, <laughs> you. it's not you. I've got no resemblance to you. He's <laughs> not doing your that's, subject." Um, but, uh, that's so funny. But you know, it, it, motherhood is a, a, a well, parenthood, not just, not strictly motherhood. In my case, I've I've written Evie, um, obviously, is a mother, and I guess. Um, you know, those threads of parenthood and those ties, the loosening of those ties as your child up and leaves and becomes a man. It's it's about, you know, how you negotiate that. And you know, it's it's a it's a beautiful and crazy and sad time. <laughs> Magic and sad all at once. But you know yeah. what, it has to be done. <laughs>
0: I have, <laughs> have to know? ask you I have to ask you this, um, writing historical fiction, um, you know, right there in the title of the genre, um, we're we're kind of at conflict or, or have the, um, uh, you know, the the uh, the possibility of conflict that that this is based on true events. There are sort of tent poles or anchors that that place the story in in a real historical context. Yet it's fiction. Some of the, the details around the story are, um, you know, dreamt up or embellished or, or, or whatever. And I would think um, that that navigating those waters would, uh, you know, has the 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 possibility of being treacherous, you know, because uh, there are some readers of historical fiction that will let you know very quickly if you get some of the historical facts wrong. Um, yet everyone wants uh a, a, A great engaging story around that Um, so um, because you do write historical fiction do you find it uh, it makes it easier because uh, you do have a framework to work within or sometimes do you think it would be easier if you didn't have the restraints of of reality or real history to um, kind of dictate how the story goes
3: look great question again i think um i think when you do go into the kinds of stories that i tell in historical fiction you um particularly with the jade lily which is um about the jewish refugees in shanghai and now again um with the story of the women in the free rayon factory i think you have to be very careful that you are paying homage to real people's stories and very aware that this is this is um, a life that people actually lived and this is a life that, um, you know, relatives and family members will read and look at. And so you have to kind of approach, well, I certainly approach the story um, as an outsider, I kind of, read all the resource material, and then I go into reading um, memoirs of people who were through it. So I read first-person accounts and um, Agnes Humberts was very close first-person account. And then if possible, I know it's getting much harder. I mean, obviously I couldn't do it with the Lost Jewels because it was 1600s, but um, with – World War II stories, there are people still around who were um, in that, um, I guess in the areas that I write about, um, people who have been Jewish refugees, people in um, the factories, and they have, um, certainly with the Jade Lily, I spoke to two Jewish refugees who, who read my manuscript and gave me great feedback on um on my story and um how realistic it was and they were so generous they taught me a big lesson because they read they read um the jade lily back to front and they took notes extensive notes both very clever men um sam mashinsky and horst eisfelder horst was 96 i think and he still took extensive notes on my manuscript and then it Anything he needed to check, he would ring his other friends who knew, or send them an email, um, because he because he mightn't have been there, but they might have been able, or he couldn't remember, and other people would verify it. And he had um, a camera, and he had lots of images of his time in Shanghai too. So, and he was so overwhelmingly grateful that I was actually telling the story. He said nobody has told this story in fiction or otherwise. So. You know, um, and then I've had a number of emails from people, families and people who were in um, Shanghai who have written to me time and time again and I still get emails every week from people that said I was there or I've my family member was there. I've done the Jewish tour in Shanghai. I had one reader who said she actually took my novel, The Jade Lily, to Shanghai and did The Jade Lily tour and went to all the places in my book. <laughs> All, she ate all the food. She went to all the museums um, because I have a list of resources at the back. She did it all. So that was a lovely feedback. And with um, with The French Gift, of course, the book that is out now, just as it was getting closer, creeping closer to um, publication, I thought, oh, you know, that very question you raised, how close is Josephine's story to Agnes. How, have I honoured her? Have I overstepped? You know, is it, what is that line? Because Josephine is very much a fictional character, but I really wanted to, you know, be accurate about the conditions of the free rayon factory and the friendships. And actually my publishers, the bits often, the bits that were very, very true Um, my publishers said, no, this is too much. This is unrealistic. You've got to take it out of the book. And I was like, that's (laughs) real shit. You know, because I think human nature and sometimes life is crazier than fiction. So there were a few things that happened. Like there was one scene that she doesn't do it now, but um, actually I should remember if it's in the book. I think it got taken out but there was a scene where she um Josephine goes into the stairwell and there is a guard and she clenches a fist and it's kind of um trying to see whether he's a member of the resistance or a, or a sympathizer um and, and it's a huge and my, my publisher said she wouldn't have done that. that's just a huge risk that's too kind of ballsy for her to do a, a prisoner to do but in real life that's exactly what Agnes Humbert did with this guard and um, you know people did I guess the stakes were high the stakes are high when it's life or death and so they do do crazy big things so um, so things like that just just like that they took in and out. And I sent it off, I actually sent my entire manuscript off to the translator of Agnes Humbert's story, Barbara Mellor, and, um, and as well as correcting some of my French, she she wrote back to me and said, I'm just so honoured and blown away with the justice you've given to this story and the space you've given to the Free rail Factory. You should be really proud of this. So I feel like if you're doing it, um, with sincerity and, um, you know, engaging with the people whose story it is and um, remembering that it's always fiction. I mean, I remember Horst Eisfeld said to me um, with the Jade Lily, I said, oh, was was this cafe exactly like this or would that have happened? He's, and he put his pen down and he sat back in his chair and he goes, Kirsty, it is fiction. It is your book. You can do what you like. <laughs> <laughs> and we are written really fiction. It was just like a beautiful, generous gesture, given that it was his real-life story. But he was like, oh, you have to make a grade on the page. has to be a good story. So um.
0: so amazing, and and what a great story it is. The French Gift is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, uh, we're gonna have links to it in the show notes where you can grab it in Kindle edition, or uh, or you know if you want to hold the paper in your hand and then proudly display it on your bookshelf when you're finished with it, oh, or audiobook. However you consume books, you can grab it. Today. Um, Kirsty, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you and connect with you online?
3: They can find me on my website. There's a link to email me. I love, love, love hearing from my readers. So it's kirstymanning.com. They can find me on Instagram, um, Kirsty Manning AU, and they can find me on my Facebook page, Kirsty Manning Author or Kirsty Manning Writer.
0: Excellent. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copy of the French gift. And uh, I, I love this book so much, Kirsty. It's amazing. We're, uh, you know, we're recommending it to everyone for this uh, gift giving season, Christmas or, or whatever you celebrate. It's, this is a perfect gift. Um, thank you so much, uh, Kirsty, for coming back on the show and sharing some time with us.
3: Thank you, Hank. It's just been a real treat to be back online and to, be speaking to you and my American readers. It's fantastic.
2: Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Glebe's The Jason Crane Series.
1: I was ten years old when I saw my first ghost. The year was 1770. My father was a barber. He kept a small shop at the Coenhoven Inn, where the King's Road met the old loop. Our modest home lay to the north, between the inn and the hanging tree a simple box of pine boards whitewashed with crushed oyster shell, one room with a spinning wheel for mother, a chair for father, and up a ladder of branches, a garret where my parents slept. I slept on the floor below, alongside my little brother, Hans, five years younger than I. Our floor sloped toward the Hudson, so that when Hans rolled over in his sleep, he often went on rolling and couldn't stop, collecting splinters and grievances. Yet on this particular night, he slept peacefully, and I was the fitful one. A mouse had taken shelter in our wall, fleeing the October chill. It scritched and scratched, nibbling a nest for itself. The sound thrilled me. I possessed a vivid mind, full of toadstools and bullfrogs and lightning storms, and so imagined a skeleton writhed in the wood. The bones of Anne Underhill, perhaps, murdered by Indians at Spook Rock. I'd heard that tale from my father, who reveled in the Dutch superstitions. He would gather us to Fireside on winter nights, and spin tales of the Heer of Dunderberg, that Storm King who rattled our white windows, of the Lady of Raven Rock who died in snowfall, pining for her lover, of trolls beneath the Penny Bridge, and hobgoblins in the Hanging Tree. He'd filled my head with such dark romance that I lay waiting for Anne's little finger bones to drag me off to some bloody fate. I rather hoped she would. A cloud cleared the moon and a square of light fell on my mother's spinning wheel. The sharp spindle glinted and the wheel began to turn without touch. A figure appeared before me as through a mist, a gray head bent to the work. She fixed me with eyes black as open graves and whispered in a low, guttural hiss. Spin, or you shall not eat. I cried out and fell to my palate, arms over my head. Hans awoke, lost his balance, and rolled away, bleeding with pain as he struck the riverside wall. Father emerged above. Agatha, what is wrong? There's a ghost, Papa. A ghost, help me. Hans laughed despite his bruises, and mother moaned and ordered us to sleep. But Papa descended and took my hands, his blue eyes twinkling. What did you see? An old woman, she said. Spin or you shall not eat. Oh, he raised a candle beneath his chin. You saw old Willow. She lived here long ago, when this was the home of Isaac Hart, our candle maker. Her husband was killed by savages. Hart took her in at the request of Lord Phillips, who paid a token sum for her upkeep. But Hart was greedy and kept the money for himself. He never fed her unless she spun. So Willow spun and spun and spun like a spider, year by year, growing old and blind and falling to waste. She died at that spinning wheel, fell over one day, and the spindle pierced her heart. Hans screamed and hid beneath the table. Mother appeared above. Daniel Van Ripper, you are a fool. I kissed Papa's fingers, for I loathed that spinning wheel. I'd be no toothless ghost, spinning and haunting little girls. I felt pity for such a spirit, and gratitude to have her example before me, stealing my resolve. Every night thereafter, I would leave a crust of bread for old Willow and sleep with one eye open in case she came to spin for me again.